this is like a showdown just so you're aware words wars against someone words maybe wars. you've never met i don't know words wars yes yeah i know it's got like nice wars collegial wars she smacks dorothy down so i feel like <laughs> <laughs> i feel like you need to respond because so what was that main contention previously on lol my praxis dr alice tarbuck of episode three shared with us some thoughts on dorothy wordsworth what everybody overlooks is that Dorothy Wordsworth's diaries are one of the most boring textual artefacts. Dorothy Wordsworth is one of those people who claps when a plane lands. Yes, correct. Dorothy Wordsworth would wear a mask underneath her nose. Yes, correct. Dorothy Wordsworth would ask if you'd tried yoga during a global pandemic. Yes, correct. Dorothy Wordsworth would never tip in a restaurant. Yes, correct. Dorothy Wordsworth listens to Michael Bublé even when it's not Christmas. Correct. Dorothy Wordsworth would set her own writing on a module and it would be behind a paywall. Yes, correct. Dorothy Wordsworth. Sure, I can do it. I normally always fuck this up as well, so it's going to be great. (laughs) (laughs) I just always stumble over my words. Very professional. Okay. Right. Professional voice is on. Hello and welcome to Lol My Praxis. Today we are talking with Dr. Joe Taylor, who is the rather ground. Uh, see, I've already fucked it up. Ground. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of in line. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, she's also ground and grand. The grand sounding presidential fellow in digital humanities at the University of Manchester. Joe has somehow tricked the academy into giving her a paid position and lots of research funding that allows her to cosplay up mountains. This is going really well. I also didn't say funding correctly there either. No funding for you ever. No funding for you. Only fun day. Microwave. Microwave. Enjoy my research fun day. Um, <laughs> her work is focused on literary geographies, spatial humanities and 19th century poetics with a focus on the literature of the Lake District. Her biography also notes that she has a canine companion who often joins her on these outdoor research excursions. So welcome to the podcast, Joe and... Rotha. Rotha, that was it. Well, Rotha is named for a Wordsworth poem because in Wordsworth's poem to Joanna, um, he talks a lot about the river Rotha and about like what a good time Joanna and the Rotha are having chatting to each other. Rotha is a great, it's a great name for a dog. Yeah, it's short just really nicely as well. Yeah, Roth. Literally anything. Roth, Rue. Although Roth is a bit, mm, I love Roth. Yeah. So the poem's to Joanna, which obviously is your name and she talks to rivers. Do you talk to rivers? So she doesn't talk directly to the river. She like laughs and it echoes and it sounds like the rivers to Wordsworth sounds like the rivers chatting to her and that she's chatting back, which was a way of getting out of saying that, yeah, I definitely talk to it. So I live really close to the river Loon and I will definitely, like, I've definitely caught myself wandering down to it before and going, oh, what a lovely river you are today. You're so <laughs> oh, you're a high tide. That's nice. I feel like this is like a, a, a byproduct of anyone that does like environmental stuff. Like whenever I go into, like we go for hill walks all the time and I go up to the trees, I'm like, you're so big. Well done. My <laughs> God, this is impressive. Look at your leaves. Yeah. They need to be told. Like, honestly, people don't give things enough appreciation. My partner looks at me like I'm nuts, but he's started to join in now, which is nice. So we got things like, look at that tree. He's like, my God. We need to tell it's magnificent. I was like, yes, we do. We need to go tell that tree it's magnificent. You need to always affirm things magnificent yeah. as much as possible. Or like really big boulders. Like you're, you're like, that's a great rock. Well done, rock. So like a flower that's like growing in a really unlikely location. Like look at look at the perseverance that you have shown. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was a mad project where they got funded to go on six month excursions to Canada to ask the rivers 
whether they could take the water from them. Because sometimes the river said no, which I don't understand how the river would say no. And then they would see how far they could walk with the river water as it ran through their fingers. And that was the project. I'm in the wrong discipline. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. To be fair, I'm misrepresenting that. Like, this prop, there was prop, there was probably... I mean, shocked. I'm absolutely shocked. Probably probably there was probably much more to it. But that's the bit that I remember. This is the thing that I just remember is the fact that sometimes the river would say no. I don't understand. There's nothing worse than a bitchy river. (laughs) Look, come on, guys. Consent is very important, right? You know, you can't just be taking stuff without consent. Like, especially now that rivers have been given in some places human rights, right? If a river's got agency, then presumably it can say no. Exactly. I don't know. Maybe I just can't, I don't know, paint with the colours of the wind. I I, I don't, like, I'm the non-environmentalist here. You think you wouldn't ever land your land on, Louise? That's not just a dead thing you can claim. Every <laughs> creature has a life, has a spirit, has a name. Sorry, I'm just not all fair with it. I'm really sorry. I can go for that whole movie, I think. I haven't watched it in so long, despite the fact that Louise sings it to me all the fucking time. I, <laughs> that's not one of my favourites to sing. It's usually Little Mermaid, to be honest. Yeah, Under the Sea or Islands in the Stream. These are favourites. Alex did her PhD on um, island poetry. And oh, so wow. obviously when we shared an office, that was like my favourite game. One of yeah, my favourite games. I, I'm trying to get an ADHD diagnosis at the minute because I really think I, like it's quite bad. <laughs> I, really, I really think that there's something going on there. Um, but yeah, that was that was one of the it many games. the fact that you've actually got energy. I don't think I know anybody at the moment who's got energy. <laughs> well, it's, it's not very constructive energy. This is the problem. sounds <laughs> constructive so far to me. Like, Islands in the Stream was a good game. And also, um, have you seen the memes of like Better with Titanic where they put like a film sequence and just put, you know, the, the sort of belty bit after the big don't, instrumental don't break in Titanic. I'm not going to do it. Don't, okay. But, um, yeah, like, bursting into the office and just belting that, that was, that was one of my favourite games. Um, and, like, the, the walls in those offices were so thin and there were so many really, really stressed students around. And, like, like I'd become immune at this point to sort of Louise kicking down the door and screaming this ridiculous song. But the people next door, you could just tell they were just there, like, fuck. Oh, God. <laughs> She's back. <laughs> Yo. <laughs> I mean, part of the problem with that as well was because the offices in that building I don't know if you had it like in the institution where you did your PhD but like you know that kind of pseudo professionalism which yeah. I really can't stand where like people would shush you in the corridors like I mean to be fair they had good reason to be shushing me but like even if you were just chatting or you were actually working like then you're like Shh, I've got a deadline it's like everyone's got a fucking deadline like yeah. we're not competing for the same job stop being so fucking toxic <laughs> maybe indulge in some Celine. sharing an office with Dr. Louise Creakin. So um, (laughs) we also curate a jingle for our guests. A jingle? Yeah, every every episode is different. Hang on, let me hold on, literally hold on to my seat. Yeah, because we curate them. Um, So I, am I doing it? I'm doing it, aren't I? Yes, I can't find my kazoo, so... The jingle is with a kazoo. And what we'd like you to do is to name that tune and why is it important to your research? So, oh God, I'm terrible at these. Okay, hit me. Okay, well, we had a bit of a, a, a bit of a 
topic debate about but mm-hmm. I only know one of them really well and I've got the kazoo so if you don't know it oh no then, you you're, for the one? then you're team Alex which frankly you don't want to be on team Alex so <laughs> wow all right <laughs> <laughs> and then every what the fuck was that? That, that, that was not, that. <clears throat> I, could, I can't remember the rest of the tunes, it's not helpful. But, I mean, I could do that. Did you even get to the bit that was relevant? Yes, that was the bit that was relevant. But it does sound really familiar and I can't name it. I can do the first line again. It won't help. No, I know it won't help. I mean, do, I mean, do, do feel free. Well, and just humor me saying that you've heard of it because otherwise Alex is going to be like, I told you so. That was um, from Calamity Jane. That was Secret Love. And the uh, the lyrics are... Oh, what's Calamity Jane? Secret Love. Got it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. No, no, I didn't think so. (laughs) I went for it because the lyrics are... No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I, I, maybe I'll try my. I can pretend to kazoo. Yeah, you do that. Upper, under, and we'll see who wins. I'll pretend to kazoo. Okay. <clears throat> Wait, I haven't. I haven't prepped this at all. Okay. Yeah. This is why I'm so crap at it. I can never. <laughs> this is just like never mind the buzzcocks, guys. I love oh, it. And I, I'm really rubbish at that. Like I'm so. Unfortunately, what's now happened is now I've got the BNBN um, jingle in my head. That's not that, um, but... Although, I do like a biscuit. Yeah, fair. I mean, we, could, we could claim that. So, And I also contend that um, Alex's one is harder to play on the kazoo anyway, so actually it's not it's not a true comparison. Um, excuse me, my mouth kazoo was fantastic just then. Thank you very much. Uh, these boots are made for walking? Oh, of course it bloody was! But in my defence, the lyrics of Secret Love are now I shout it from the highest hill, I've even told the yellow daffodils. So it was more relevant. Uh, Yeah, you both win this game. Well done. Yeah, both win. Both win. We're both winners. Yes. Why are these relevant to your research? Tell us about your research. That bit um, is, so I've been researching into walking over the last uh, couple of years, starting with the book that I now have coming out next year. co-written with Ian Gregory and the chapter of that is about walking in the Lake District and that led to a project with the Wordsworth Trust on Dorothy Wordsworth who was a massive show-off walker. One of the things that she did was to she completed a pioneering ascent of Scarfell Pike so she was one of the first people who recorded the highest mountain in England. It's like the the second recorded ascent or something as far as we could find. Um, so 200 years to the day after she did that, a group of us sort of corralled around the Wordsworth Trust, including the um, Wordsworth Trust curator, Jeff Cowton, two Cumbrian artists, Alex Jacob Whitworth and Harriet Fraser, Paul Westover, who is at Brigham Young University and a literary tourism work 
Bain and a couple of other people who were involved in the Ambleside Players, the local Amdram society, took on roles of the from the party that Dorothy had walked up Scarfell Pike in and recreated the walk up Scarfell Pike. Fortunately, wearing my own walking boots, not Good. the kind of um, nails things that Dorothy would have been wearing, but we did wear um, long skirts and bonnets and limited waterproofing, <laughs> which was fine. Apart from the fact that, so this was on October the 7th, October the 7th, 1818, it was a bloody lovely day. It was sunny, you could see for miles, it was warm, the day was long, there was a full moon, it was delightful. October the 7th, 2018 was crap. It <laughs> the entire day. We got caught in like 60 mile an hour winds on the ridge. We didn't actually make it to Scarfell Pike because... Oh no! So the group was roughly divided across the genders. The men were all like, oh no, we can definitely push on because like this is like, it's miserable, but it's it's okay. Ordinarily, I would have been completely in that camp. But what happens when you're wearing a long skirt is that you're essentially wearing a kite. <laughs> The three of us who were wearing long skirts were like, now nah, let's go back. So we, we came down from Ilgil Head, which was like nearly there, but but not quite. And it was already dark by the time we got to the bottom. We got to the bottom and like, our oh, families will be so worried about us. So don't worry, we'll get in touch with them as soon as possible. And got back to where there was signal and our families were all like, hasn't it been a lovely day? It's been so sunny everywhere. Fuck's sake. But like, <laughs> when you're cosplaying as Dorothy, which is the official name for it, so I wasn't Dorothy. Alex was Dorothy. I was the maid. Did you have any sort of realizations about the impact of I don't know material culture on walking? Yeah. So my two main takeaways were firstly that skirts are really comfy to walk in, apart unless it's a windy day, in which case kite. But, um, <laughs> otherwise, like they're really they keep your legs warm. They're a bit of a wind breaker. Again, like not in the full-on gales but you know a, a, a cool breeze they're good for and they're like they're quite free moving that kind of long long skirt we did it again a couple of months later to do um an episode of uh, claire balding's uh radio 4 program so i was wearing because my clothes that we'd, we'd rented from a lo- local theater company got absolutely ruined in the storm so the bonnet <laughs> in the um so my my skirt was ruined because the bonnet was this right? No, my skirt got ruined because my woolen shawl that I was wearing in the rain, all the dye leaked out of it all over my oh, skirt. So it looked like, so it was a red scarf and a very light coloured skirt. It looked like I'd either been massacred or was suffering the worst period of my life. <laughs> and my bonnet got ripped off its ribbons and Shit. sent over a car. So the second time we did it, I was wearing a different skirt and that was, that was a bit looser. So I recommend that. Um, but the bonnet was the proper revelation. I was completely in love with the bonnet because if you're walking and anyone, I feel like anyone who does anything related to 19th century women needs to put on a bonnet at some point after that walk because a bonnet essentially blinkers you like a cart horse. So you can only, you can only see in one direction at a time, which seems really obvious, but it completely changes the way that you like look at the landscape. Firstly, because if you're talking to anyone, you have to look directly at them. So it really frames them. It's a really like intimate way of talking to somebody somehow, but also it frames everything you look at. It's like a proper picturesque experience in that kind of Claude Glass sort of way. So you're wearing a frame, so you can only see things in like an Instagram shot. Yeah, like a bonnet's eye view. I like that. Yeah, it was really like Dorothy's journal. 
she focuses in really closely on like flowers or bits of grass or whatever and wearing a bonnet you can completely see why she does that because you can only see that it feels like it kind of magnifies it yeah and you can kind of almost understand that sort of sense of determination of like doing these ridiculously long walks because you're like well I mean you're trained to just go forward aren't you if you've got fucking blinkers on well yeah <laughs> what else is there to do that Louise was right about this song selection. It's more relevant to Joe's research. Louise also happens to be editing this episode. She is a bit of a like one-upper with, with walking, isn't she? She's a bit like, well, I did 80,000 miles today on foot. Oh my God, could you imagine if Dorothy had a Fitbit? Well, yeah, exactly. So <laughs> this is like, so the following from the that walk, I've been trying to write it up for two years and haven't yet done it. It'll be written in the next couple of weeks. Nobody we've, we've all got those projects. <laughs> we've all got deadlines. <laughs> we've all got those ones that have long since passed. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Let's not start down that one. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that could put in a form of like academic one-upmanship that I'm shitter than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> true, true, true. So the pedometer was the first pedometer was invented in Dorothy's lifetime it was invented in like 1780 in Switzerland so no idea if Dorothy knew about this because I don't know how quickly the 1780 pedometer became like a popular item but I think it's kind of fascinating like it's telling right that the pedometer that kind of urge to quantify how far you're walking is happening moment as Dorothy Dorothy's a wanker in her letters like she sends letters to people like as Louise is saying like I walked like gazillions of miles today and I'm not even tired like there's a letter that she writes when she's about 42 43 says she'd managed she w- she'd walked for sort of four or five hours and had kept up a pace of four miles an hour which like in the Lake District over hills like that's hella impressive so she, yeah she does that quite a lot so have you tried I mean like in terms of quantifying oh so I feel like there's a bit of a delay I keep talking over you Louise I'm sorry I'm so sorry so sorry no I'm not (laughs) you go no you go no you go oh actually you know what you go because my partner's phone keeps ringing and it's here and I don't know I don't I don't know who Alison is (laughs) (laughs) yeah so Fitbits if we've got like the sort of measures and stuff like that of what she's claiming to be walking have you tried to replicate that pace just over like one hour could you do that or would you think you're gonna have to get like a proper athlete to do this shit like how fit do you think Dorothy Wordsworth was oh do you reckon she was stacked yeah I think she was like really fit but also in a way that like we or I definitely don't have the energy to compete with like I'm not bad like I'm quite a fast walker largely because I have to chase the dog out of rivers so often (laughs) (laughs) but so like I can keep up a good pace but what I can't do is go regularly for like 35 mile a day walks and like I spend most of my time sitting on my computer and you know stuff so like I think I according to my Garmin I walk more than most people in my percentile that's nothing compared to what Dorothy would have been walking and people like Ellen Wheaton who like genuinely did write like walk regularly 35 miles a day in places like the Lake District like it's crazy so she was stacked then do you think Dorothy had a six yeah but I think I imagine like a lean like a lean like a runner's body yeah like a sort of marathon runner live like 
wiry, lithe. 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 A lithe body. Mm-hmm. Alive, alive oh. What? Helped by the fact that she didn't really have any teeth, so she was also quite thin. Oh. She didn't have any teeth? No, she lost all her teeth when she was really quite young. So she had wooden teeth, I think, for a bit. But yeah, so like, oh. by the time she was like, like 1802 when she's what, like 30, she didn't have that many. She, her teeth were all really hurting and she didn't have that many. She'd already lost quite a few. Hmm. So, like, eating wasn't so comfortable for her, so she didn't really do it as much as, you know, a person might. Oh, wow. The Dorothy diet does not sound like one I want to try out. That's, like, walk 35 miles a day, don't eat. No, thank you, Dorothy. Yeah, you have this, like, apocryphal story about Walter Scott that there's, like, no evidence for, but Harriet Martineau spread a rumour that um, that Walter Scott went to stay with the Wordsworths um, and got so hungry and sick of porridge and gruel that he climbed out a window and went to the local pub. <laughs> Love that. That would be great. I mean, I choose to believe it because it's... Yes, well, I just love the idea that the Wordsworths are incredibly boring. Yeah. Like, this is just, like, you know, this is now the second podcast in which this has come to light, and I'm taking that as fact. They are boring as fuck. Well, so I like like the idea that they're, like, that they that there's loads of things about their lives that are simple slash boring. Uh, just boring. But, um, but also... They would have done really well in lockdown, like, apart from oh, yeah, the they would have, like, smashed lockdown. They'd have been making sourdough and, like... Yeah, yeah, getting all their fitness goals done. They'd have been doing Joe Wicks's workout every day. Who the fuck is Joe Wicks? I, people keep talking about this and I've never seen it. Like, would Joe Wicks be a great workout to go up a hill with? Like, what is this? Um, I, in the same way that I feel like Dorothy or Louise would be annoying at the top of a mountain, like, would still be really energetic. <laughs> <laughs> still be chatting shit on the mountain yeah I mean I don't know because I, I do crossfit so I'm quite you know I'm, I'm quite in print so I get unlike Dorothy really hangry really quickly so like I'll get like sort of halfway up and like start being a complete bitch and then I'll be given some cake and I'll be fine um, <laughs> Joe Wick wouldn't have that problem so maybe Joe Wicks and Dorothy would be like the ideal walking partners I mean it sounds like hell like <laughs> Joe Wicks did the PE lessons for all the homeschool yeah. kids oh that's why i don't know what this is about i don't i okay yeah right fair enough this makes more sense now also they were quite early in the morning and obviously yeah exactly (laughs) i sleep letters so that future generations can marvel at your walking skills on the subject of the wordsworths being boring as fuck we like to ask our guests for a boring fact about themselves it's just because mm-hmm. now that i've garbled your actual biography it's it's better to know a little bit more about you like i feel like every time anyone introduces me i feel like i have to apologize for the wankeriest job title in the entire world like I'd like to point out that I did not make that up. I mean, I love it. No, embrace it. Admiral of digital humanities. Here we go. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> you may address me as Lord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We had Jen Baker on and she was like, no, I've always wanted to be Admiral of Literature. And I'm just like, <laughs> yes. Yeah, what, what is the full title of your position? That's it. Presidential Fellow in Digital, or Presidential Academic Fellow in Digital president of the digital humanities yes Um, i'd love to be the president or something so hi empress (laughs) i don't know if it counts if it's presidential i also feel like i'm constantly letting down the role because i can't think of anyone less presidential 
I mean, I can. <laughs> what, do we happen to be president? <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Although um, maybe when this yes. comes out, we'll have, a, we'll have the president-elect actually inaugurated and nothing will have gone wrong. And did you see that he's broken his leg tripping over his dog? Best. Oh, yes, yes, I saw that. So good, so good. Because it's going to also be the first rescue dog in the White House yeah. as well. I mean, and that was provided, but also like of all the reasons to be injured, that's the one. But wait, that wasn't a boring fact. That was oh, that was just a drug title. I think of one. <laughs> like I can think of many, <laughs> but one really. But I just don't. I could tell you about my knitting. Is yeah, great. One? Do it. Is that Sounds very Dorothy. What else? Like, so I'm currently knitting a gazillion hats for Christmas presents. Mm-hmm. So all my spare time is taken up knitting hats. Or also, my main achievement over lockdown, apart from the obvious sourdough, was um, that I Marie Kondoed my entire house. So I, oh, so you just got rid of everything? Oh well, and folded everything beautifully. So I can. I'm now that person who will walk into your house and go, "Is that how you want to fold your socks?" <laughs> <laughs> Has your has your life improved? Have you found what was it sparked joy through I, folding no, of socks? No, I, I felt more joyful, partly because I could never find my socks because they, like, all my socks have holes in them, and I got rid of all the ones with holes in them. And now every time I open my drawer, all three pairs of socks don't have holes in them. So. All three, <laughs> lucky girl. Now <laughs> kind of like the joy is a byproduct of you know being an adult. no i need to go back to this do you only own three pairs of socks no but i had to get i had to buy more because when i um so it was it reached an embarrassing stage last christmas because i went on a research trip to australia where i was genuinely working but my mum came along too she was not working so it meant that for the first time in my adult life my mum saw the state of my underwear um (laughs) for christmas i got a lot of new socks Nice. My mom was had decided that my, that I was an embarrassment. Love a passive aggressive Christmas present. Love mm, them. Yeah. So like, sort yourself out, Joe. Well, here's a train ticket to come visit us more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did that to my dad, and then the pandemic hit, and so he couldn't use it. <laughs> irony. <laughs> the irony. He did it on purpose. He just doesn't want to come up here. Did I make that joke? But my parents like once didn't invite me to Christmas, and they went to the Maldives with my brother without inviting me <laughs> we'll probably have to cut this louise because she is our biggest fan, <laughs> our biggest fan. hi Faye. Faye. Um, she, she loves it when i bring it up it was my fault because i'd been planning on spending christmas with my partner for a long time and there, we had sort of various sort of family members who were quite ill and stuff like that so they'd never had the opportunity to and they were like oh so we're thinking about going away this year maybe getting a cottage in the highlands and i was like right well this is the perfect opportunity opt out and go to the in-laws so i was like nah i think i think i'll go to the in-laws because of everything that we've been talking about and then i see my mum like like a month later she's like oh we booked christmas we're going to the maldives and like i didn't know that was a fucking option and you take my little brother what i think indoors over the maldives worst choice but they're not the maldives exactly i was like the fuck we all know the maldives won't be here forever louise come on because my mum was saying on the phone the other day she was like yeah i don't think what's like because they got into the habit of going too often because then I retired and obviously they just always go to the Maldives now. <laughs> They've been about four times. And oh my god! Yeah, no, I know because they're the same fucking place. And now they're like, 
oh, well, you know, after the pandemic, I don't think we'll be going anymore because, you know, it won't be there. And I'm like, well, it's great that you've been in the first place, isn't it, Faye? <laughs> like, <laughs> that you've managed to enjoy that. She's like, yeah, I really miss it. And I'm like, fuck you, Faye. Um, I love my mother. She listens to this podcast. <laughs> hey, Faye. <laughs> What was I saying? Nothing relevant. Your Tinder bio, that's what we need to get on. <laughs> you know, I, I got that basically peer-reviewed. I collaborated with it. I collaborated on it extensively and got extensive peer review. Who was your collaborator? Um, I have a WhatsApp group with all of my school friends. And nice. they criticised my actual Tinder bio, so I thought that they were the ideal audience to mm-hmm. an academic Tinder bio. So could you tell us what your academic Tinder bio is? It's something along the lines of likes long walks, dressing up and knows all the best romantic places. Ooh, yes, yeah, strong. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Than my actual bio. What's your actual Tinder bio? I have a nice dog. She likes mud and pizza. This is also very strong. <laughs> like, I feel like dogs are like the best kind of like lures for everything. Like back in the old times when we'd go to the pubs and the dogs were there, 100% you'd see people with dogs who was just sort of like there on a, on a fishing expedition, yeah. essentially. <laughs> just living there, like hanging out by the bar, like, oh, oh, I'm here alone with my dog. Oh, you want to talk to my dog? Yes. Look at me flirt. Look at me flirt. <laughs> Wagging my own tail, flipping my hair. And these are the men. So... <laughs> <laughs> that's how it's done in Glasgow's East End apparently <laughs> that actually does sound like Lancaster I, I talked to some random with a dog just because they had a dog I mean Stranger Danger doesn't count if it's, if it's a dog, dog. Nope. there's a, like a footnote to Stranger Danger which is unless they have a dog <laughs> nice people yeah exactly um, yeah so I mean I think I'd swipe right to your actual one just purely on the the dog basis I feel like for the academic one, I don't know. I think that it's like, I know all the romantic places and I'm like, all right. I think my academic Tinder bio, like the majority of academic Tinder bios, I would be a bit of a wanker. It's fun. <laughs> I think it's strong. I mean, I, I think that the addition of dressing up is, is helpful. It's alluring and, um, you know. I don't like Louise. You'd love a cosplay date. Oh, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. But I'm more like, because we've had other people on that are, that, whose academic Tinder bios are literally like, I like books. Fuck me. But <laughs> <laughs> literally. But, um, yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you know, what, what is this, Joe? Do you want like seduction yeah, and dating? Slightly... Like that's not what Tinder's for. I would like, there is any opportunity to get this novel into a conversation. There is a uh, Lake District novel by the 19th century journalist and author, Eliza Lynn Linton, who FYI lived for a time in John Ruskin's how what was after John Ruskin's house in Coniston. He didn't live there when she lived there. She lived there with her. Well, she lived she kind of moved in with a guy with a load of children and then married the guy. But she was she was largely like a virulent anti-feminist. Despite the fact that she was the first salaried woman journalist in Britain and like her actual life was quite kick-ass feminist. Yeah, but what did feminism ever do for her? Well yeah like um she didn't need it so why did anybody else exactly she wrote she for a while had ambitions to be like the other george Eliot, and so she wrote (laughs) she wrote some novels and my favorite is called lizzie lawton of greyrig which is set in like a fictional version of the lake district where she basically like picks all the biggest bits of the lake district and shoves them all together in one valley to make it like 
like a super late district. And in that, Lizzie Lawton gets seduced by a hot guy with a horse. Oh yeah, I love that. Hot guy with a horse is always the one. Yeah. Like we've all been there. Um, and then I think she drowns. Ah, uh, not there though. No, no. not there. But she has <laughs> and lots of dogs and um and the hot guy with the horse. So until the drowning, she's living quite a good life, I think. She's miserable though. But like that kind of sort of seduction in a pretty in a pretty place, lots of walks, like a rowing boat ride. Like so, thing. That's- so I'm, 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 I was kind of lost track there. So you're saying that this is your academic Tinder bias. You want to be seduced by a man on a horse and then drown. I'd like to be seduced by a man on a horse and then in a pretty place where there's lots of good walking and, um, and you know, the opportunity for a romantic boat ride. The drowning, if I'm in a 19th century novel, I feel like is you know. Well, you've got to go somewhere. Women can't survive those things. Exactly. So um, being realistic about these things, then I mean. Sure. Yeah. Like, if I've got to my own 19th century death, that's on Opic. That's a pretty good one, yeah. It's like what happens in The Boy at Wananda, if he if the cliffs actually chase him and he actually dies. Yeah. And the same as, like, in The Mill and the Floss. As if, like, I mean, if we're talking about realistic and realism, always ends in, a, in an awkward sibling drowning. Also, Lizzie Lawton, like Maggie, has excellent hair, which is a thing to which I aspire. Oh, very good aspiring yes yes i mean i do nothing about it but i aspire <laughs> aspire yeah but, i mean let's pack it off though so mm, don't know. Yeah. Did you, that, that's that's the next stage of lockdown maybe yeah like, shaved head yeah. Mm-hmm. go and fill <laughs> not lizzie maggie maggie helps off maggie, yeah go and fill maggie all over Of productivity during a global pandemic. The Lake District is what we were talking about. Yeah, the bit about the Lake District being really, really high. What are your thoughts on the news that Mount Everest is actually higher than we thought? How does this fuck up your research? I saw that. I've not read it yet. Is that because, like, is it snowed a bit? Do we know? Sure. I don't. I mean, I think the, the, the small articles I read was that something about Nepal and China being like, small we've got article. different numbers. You mean tweet? Small articles. <laughs> no, I mean those stupid shit articles that are basically just the tweet, but expanded with a couple of more sentences yeah, and some pictures. The only thing I've seen about it is the bit on the side of Twitter where it's where, well, the first time I logged onto Twitter today, it said that Israel had had contact with a galactic connected who knows um you know secondly that um the Everest is higher than we previously thought yeah by three whole feet yeah I mean it's important height is very important for mountains yeah I mean that surely just means that the queue can be an extra person longer I mean I kind of thought that maybe it was just because they started to count the amount of dead bodies that are at the top or something (laughs) and (laughs) like the bones calcifying yeah exactly they're just kind of stacked up there but yeah I don't know like but actually, like, d- does height is height a thing that is important in your research with stuff? Because with, with, I know that you are you head a leadership group for With, which is the Women in Hills Network. I really wondered where that was going. There, I was like, no, I don't. I don't lead anything. Um, yeah, don't do anything. Um, but Women in the Hills, I like that is a thing. You do actually do that, yeah. Okay. That, yeah. So, because <laughs> I mean, th- some of the stuff that I know a little bit about in terms of like feminism and hill walking and mountains, it's always the kind of Nan Shepherd's sort of elements in terms of going into the mountain rather than on top of and conquering so like does height really matter in terms of mountains and mountaineering well so this is a thing that i'm kind of fascinated by um whether or not because i think i've i 
certainly when I first started researching this, I was really drawn into that kind of dichotomy of like height doesn't matter for women because Nan Shepherd and Dorothy does it a bit as well. Like she talks a lot about the journey and things. And when we did that exhibition at the Wordsworth Trust that involved the Dorothy cosplay that this girl did exhibition, we the journey and the walking and the feel of like being in the mountains was the thing that we concentrated on more. Is that just because you didn't get to the top though? Yeah, I mean part of it <laughs> Yeah, it was more about the journey. For- it's about the journey. Yeah. You just didn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. Just providing you were mindfully paying attention. It's okay. Yeah, praxis. Yeah, lol. <laughs> so, um, but so Dorothy, when she's talking about walking in her journals, especially the Grassmere journals and the Al Foxton ones, like the early journals, she's like she spends way more time walking in the valleys than she does in the mountains. The mountains are, at that point at least, are more of a special thing. They're not like her day today walking it's not like she's popping up hell in every thursday so when she goes up something like Scar- like that excursion up scarfell pike is like a proper big deal it's a, a well-planned day trip well it's sort of well-planned they plan to go halfway up and then they get to halfway up and think this is a nice day let's carry on so- oh then you're gonna march them back down again no. so when she gets to the top of s cores and then scarfell pike she does talk a lot about the view and like it being unprecedented and stuff one of the things that i really like about her scarfell pike letter though is that she um talks about the view and how far she can see it's one of the things that people write about a lot from Scarfell that Dorothy was lucky to get the view for that day is that on a good day you can see from um, Snowdonia up to Criffle. And some days you can see the Cairngorms really um mm. but like you can see over to the Isle of Man and stuff and then out, out over Yorkshire. And she had one of those days where you could see like loads in every direction. She, she, talks, um, she talks about Criffle and Snowdonia feeling like they're sort of and looking at each other but then she turns her attention to what's at her feet so she then starts she turns her attention to what she calls like the bones on the top of the mountain the and the lichens and the mosses so I think what what's kind of special about Dorothy's writing in that or mountain writing in that way is that she flips between the view and sort of goes like oh this is very nice but also this thing that's right here that we can like that we're sitting among is kind of incredible as well so there's a nice Mm. balance between that bonnet vision like long range short range like it so it's less about look at me and i've gotten to the top of the mountain i'm so great i am the champion it's not about conquering i don't think um i don't think dorothy's quite there in the same way as like nan shepherd is a kind of um collaboration with the mountain she doesn't kind of I don't think she quite goes that far. I think she does that a little bit with the lakes. So talks like she she talks about the lakes much more as if she's in conversation with them. And she doesn't do that as much with mountains. Do you ever feel like posing lines a few miles above Tinted Abbey on revisiting the banks of the Wye during a tour, July 13th? 1798. So we've had allegations on this very podcast that basically her diaries consist of nothing more than going on walks to avoid her brother. Is this a fair assessment? Um, no. Moving on. Moving on. So, no, I think (laughs) obviously William must have been really bloody annoying to live with. He's really moody and like he gets such a drama queen, such a drama queen. And like, I think she deals with him like incredibly well because she's like, she's so patient with him. Um, um, And she she's super patient with him. Like she goes and follows him around and writes up his notes and she takes really good care of him and etc. And I think she like likes doing it. Like I think there's a part of Dorothy that's like really nurturing. So I don't mean it to sound like she was doing this under sufferance. 
but and but then she does also like enjoy getting out for a good walk she actually like she walks most when william's not there when william's there she's she does tend to just be focusing on him it's when he goes away that she's like moping around the hill but i think i do think i do think here is the rant that there is like I th- that dismissing her journals as being boring because they're everyday is a bit of a feminist issue because she writes about day-to-day life and I think it's a mistake to think that day-to-day life is necessarily boring I think it's just interest differently interesting um so while it's uh, it's quite monotonous and she doesn't go off and do loads of exciting things I think there was an issue as well with, with the constructed piety that um Alice read into the journal is that a thing or is it real so I think the Wordsworth's religion I think is really complicated because it's not like they're they're not like exceptionally religious in a kind of church going to like they do go but they're not like it's not like a major not fanatics no like no I think it was Ruskin goes when Ruskin goes to the Lake District for the first time he sits in church behind Southey and Wordsworth at least half of this story might be made up. It's in the Iteriad, so fact check me at will. But um, he, sits behind, he sits behind, I think, Wordsworth and Southey and gets really disappointed because Southey falls asleep or Wordsworth falls asleep. And he's just really disappointed that he's just sat behind this couple of old men who are clearly resenting the fact that they're in church um, and using it as a bit of an opportunity for a nap. But um, so, but I think like they find a sort of religious spirituality in the mountains. And I think it kind of connects with that everydayness in the sense that it's she finds a kind of spirituality in this day to, in her day-to-day practices so it's not like she has to go somewhere special but that it's kind of everywhere and that she finds she'd be like she for sure would be into mindfulness and like she'd have every app <laughs> if, um if she was alive today I think and she'd definitely be somebody who was like I've just been to a yoga class and now I'm going to do my meditation in the middle of a lake and I just (laughs) and then I'm doing a deep cleanse at the moment and so I'm starving myself this morning and then I'm going to but I feel so I feel alive and connected and one with the world this impact case study asks can you sing with all the voices of the mountain can you paint with all the colors of the wind I mean, what do you think she would think of today's like women's outdoor wear? Because I am always so infuriated by this whenever I have to go and get a new kit where I'm like, why is it always pink, purple or teal? Like, what do you think Dorothy would think about our limited colour palette? She didn't mind a limited colour palette because she could kind of wear a limited colour palette. Like she, like, did just, she just didn't really care about clothes that much. But I, but I do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I don't know. We actually put this to, like, um, we asked somebody about this as part of the Women in the Hills Network. This is one of the questions that we had for, like, involving sportswear brands. Like, why why is everything the same colour? Like, I personally am a bit sick of the amount of comments I get when I go walking because my dog wears the same colour as me. And so everyone, everyone that we meet going up a hill thinks it's hilarious to say, Ah, you're matching! But yes, we're matching because this is the only thing that you can buy that's not fucking pink. <laughs> um, what color is it everything is turquoise yeah yeah everything everything's turquoise it's all exactly the same shade as turquoise it's all the same color of turquoise everything's turquoise but you have to be really careful at least like i 
very often because I don't think about what I wear ever will find that I'm wearing the same color leggings with the same color jacket and will just be a vision in teal but completely accidentally and I think it's a marker of like reaching your 30s that you buy a teal rain jacket yeah mine also in like a full marker of my aged 30s has national trust emblazoned all over it because it's a oh excellent it's a jack horskin one where like proceeds go to the national trust so i do like i have i've just fully embraced my middle age now i think yeah iconic love it do you also have a parking permit for it yes like yes of course (laughs) i was so outraged i bought my parents um for christmas last year a national trust gift um because they were like we never do things we're very boring and we hate each other so i was like we'll go and hate each other at a castle yeah um and then the pandemic hit and they couldn't go anywhere but the national trust (laughs) magazine is a good read okay well i'm not sure if they read it no i reckon it's lovely articles about flowers and things oh very nice i'm sure do you reckon dory should have had a column in it i've I've read it yeah also the guardian's country diary is i think like dorothy's ideal genre we invite you to revise and resubmit so we've been talking about hills what is the metaphorical hill that you are willing to die on (laughs) just semicolon semicolons how so um i love a semicolon and i was reading so Let me tell you a story about my failure of last week. My partner had to write, was doing a course uh, at work and had to write a document and was given a very long and very dull document about how to use grammar. And this document contained instructions on how to use semicolons and was passable, I suppose, but I had issues with it. Then I proofread the thing that he had to submit. He got it back. And he got eight out of ten on writing and told that he had minor typographical and grammatical errors. Did he fuck? Absolutely not. What had happened was that I had used a dramatic dash. <gasps> I am all for a dramatic dash, and apparently they are not. Another dramatic dash. Like an M dash. M dash, N dash, what are they? Who knows? Um, but yes, so semicolons are, I think, a hill on which I will die. As is the um, and this again is because of somebody like somebody proofreading my work and I've never forgotten it. The on which I will die rather than the hill you will die on, the lack of not ending preposition. And it's one of the things that I never knew was a thing until I was like twenty seven. And now it really annoys me. There's many hills on which I will die. I, I just I'm trying to try grammatical hills, like I I I feel like um, yeah, I'll go with that one. Um, I have a sort of a hill about um the word out with in academic writing because it's correct. Yeah, it's correct. If it's a correct word. Yeah, it's a word yeah. in Scotland. Yeah. So you say out with blah blah blah, but it's apparently it's not English. So I have a bit of a. I think honestly, I think when you move to Scotland, you have to use yeah, it. It's the rules. It's it's the rules. Mm-hmm. Like, I use it all the time. And people are like, what the fuck is that? It's not a word. But yeah, no. Outworth is a, is a Scottish thing. I was picked up on... Because obviously it's been fine because I've been at a Scottish institution. And I did a, a, an application for an English institution. And they were like, Outworth is not a word. And I was like, hang on. Every time I use Outworth, like, I can hear fucking Mel Gibson with an accent screaming freedom. I will not change Outworth. And they were like... Okay, they might be Sassanax. And I was like, don't you use that word after you've outwitted me. Like, 
region. A scholar of the digital humanities. I think we have one more big button. Yeah, it's quite a big one. It is big. Are you are you prepared, Joe? Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Right, what the fuck is the digital humanities? Oh, ace What the ace question. I love that question. What, what is it? Are we doing it now? This is digital. Well, we teach a module at Manchester actually called What the Fuck is the Digital Humanities? Oh my God, good. So like, this is a hill on which I will die, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it is an area of study. I will die upon this so, hill. No, no, no. I am president of this hill. No, no, no. The thing, the hill on which I will die is that I don't think it's a field, um, which like, I'm sorry for all of the digital humanists who do think it's a field, but I think but you're wrong. I feel like it's a methodology, but I feel like my discipline is literature or literary studies of some kind of ilk. Um, but I pursue that by using digital methods. And like for me, the digital humanities should be the study of the humanities first and foremost but where the digital allow or the use of digital technologies allows you in some ways to analyze in new ways or ask new questions about the the kind of data that you're interested in. I just, I, oh, a thing of proper irritation is when you like go to a conference paper and somebody's got a pretty picture and they say, and so I did digital humanities. It's like, yes, but what you've done there is like what we tell all of our students not to do. Like you provided the point and the evidence and then fucked off the explanation. You've got to pee. You've got to pee. Oh my god. What um so what so what is good digital humanities practice? What sort of projects like can you use? What what sort of interventions? So I think good humanities practice is using the visualizations, like let's assume that like what you're producing is in some way a visualization or a database or something that that uses those um things that you're producing to ask new questions, not to provide answers. So a map, for instance, shouldn't show you anything in the same way that a poem doesn't show you anything. The author isn't telling you anything. I've just finished marking. Can you tell me? Um, but what it does indicate is that like, okay, there's an interesting thing happening there. What What's going on? So this was the Lake District project that I was the postdoc on. It was like, that was one of the central Mm-hmm. sort of points to to that how can we blend together approaches from corpus linguistics geographical information science and literary studies and the, the major thing that i think literary studies asks uh, or adds to that equation is that constant critiquing and questioning okay like why does that matter why is this nuance important what so um so i think the best digital humanities work is the work that kind of constantly pushes that like, okay, so what, so why is this, why is this important? What's it adding to our knowledge of the humanities, not to our knowledge of technology necessarily. That's not to say that I think at the same time, humanities can contribute to the way that technology and computer scientists and computer science works by again, constantly challenging on that, that kind of why, um, why does this matter question? And that project, what were the main kind of literary findings? So just to, to just give a like really concrete example of like, what you managed to find out that was more from like I'm just I find it like it's just me like being stupid but like I find it quite difficult to think of things in a kind of um abstract methodological way now I think that's completely fair and it was one of the like when I started that postdoc I I started that postdoc and the remit was basically here's a corpus here's some tools learn how to use them write a book 
Yeah, I, 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 like that's the way that I kind of conceptualize digital humanities in general. It's just like you have all the tools, and well, then it's like, but there yeah, just seems to be a that, void. No, I think me. that's completely like, fair, and that's one of the things that I, I think I've really struggled with is like, particularly with that job title. Actually, I think like titles really matter, and like not wanting to do that kind of work, like it's still sort of wanting to do work that's good literary work. Um, so the end of the like, I think that good digital humanities work is sort of secondary to good literary work but the two can go hand in hand so the the book that i mentioned that should be out next year if all anyone who's interested anyone is interested in pre-ordering it'll be out with bucknell university press and it should be out in autumn 2021 it's called deep mapping the literary lake district and it's written it's me and ian gregory um who is professor of digital humanities at lancaster university um so maybe could answer this what is the digital humanities question better than me although i suspect what he would say is fuck if i know <laughs> <laughs> But, um, so we, in the end, ended up going, splitting that book into thematic sections, which were basically things that I was interested in that I found while I was searching in the corpus. So um, one, I guess, more concrete example of that in the chapter that I just absolutely had no intention of writing. And then, you know, when you go down the rabbit hole and it's like, well, now I've written like 20,000 words on this, it needs to be published. Yeah, a lot of my academic projects have started out as jokes. Yeah, and then I started thinking <laughs> about them even more, and then they became things. Yeah, so, so, yeah, yeah. so I was—I can't even remember what I was searching for, but I was faffing around with um, the corpus one day, like just like essentially doing some keyword searches. I wasn't doing anything very exciting, and the word "canon" kept popping up, and I was like, "We're in the middle of the Lake District, which is, you know, largely landlocked. At least the the major bit that we that the corpus talked about." It why is there canon um and why why are they being talked about so much and it turned out um and this wasn't necessarily new um new work like the carol bolton's um edition of robert Salvi's uh, letters from Espriella talks a bit about this temple but's also written a bit about it but there was a tourist practice in the lake district in from the romantic period it died out a little bit in the victorian period but you can still see some evidence of it today the national trust don't let you fire off cannons anymore which i think is true but okay not even with a sticker not even when you have a coat mm-hmm. coat and parking permit even with a membership but people would go to certain spots in the lake district and pay to have the innkeeper or fire off cannon and you could pay more or less money to get a bigger bang so if you could... <laughs> bang for your buck yes love it like a deluxe version of the canon bang that would give you more echoes and the purpose was to like generate these echoes to like feel the sublime but the um the i guess contribution from that was so it started out with just what the fuck are people doing going and banging off cannons in the lake district but actually a serious point to be made about like the way that people were firstly experiencing the landscape and accessing the sublime so part of the the reason for doing it was to feel dwarfed by the echoes mm. part of it was to feel like you're in conversation with the landscape because like um in monty python and the holy grail you know when he's going like i'm an idiot i'm an idiot <laughs> like that bit um it's like like the 19th century equivalent of of that um the mountain shouting back you're all idiots go home <laughs> um, but they also they partly are using the echo as a way of like vicariously traveling to places that they can't get to so they're putting, like, there's a canon at uh, Lodora near um, Keswick. And one writer, I think it's Edward Baines, talks about the echoes going around, being able to hear them, the echoes going around Borrowdale, which is really inaccessible and, like, down in, towards the, the valley where Scarfell is, um, down towards Westwater. 
it's not it's not very drivable even now there's only one quite narrow road it's the same road pretty much it's the same road pretty much that um was, that was in use in the 19th century so they talk about like it, the echoes feeling like the landscape's being brought to them mm-hmm. um and so it's like this like acoustic version of, of the sublime it's another way of accessing places that they couldn't necessarily get to cool and you only found that out by accessing a digital corpus and finding that the word canon was being repeated so i i mean other people would have found this i think like no no we're trying to plug the digital humanities here let let them have a win like like the way with everything else right like you everyone has we all have our own research interests and so certain words jump out of us i'm sure that other people reading the same text manually canon would have jumped out of them i don't think it would have done for me in the same way Mm -hmm. i didn't i wasn't i didn't know i was interested in sound until i started down this rabbit hole and then spent three years working on it but um and the dorothy stuff as well like that so the other thing about that corpus was that it was manually put together it's quite a small corpus it was 80 texts about one and a half million words which from a literary point of view is quite big but from a corpus linguistics point of view is teeny so but it was it was pulled together largely from this bibliography um of late district writing that a couple of people over the course of about 10 years had pulled together and like manually selected and there's some really there's some good reasons why all of the texts were included but it's not exactly a very diverse corpus like i say 80 texts of those 86 are by women oh lucky oh my god nice Two of them were by Harriet Martineau. It's like teaching a course back at Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah. They were all by white people. Imagine. Somebody, somebody Shocking. Like, some, somebody at one point um, said, um, yeah, but is that really a fair criticism? Because how many people of colour were actually wandering around the Lake District in the 19th century and writing about it? Just because like those accounts aren't necessarily... Firstly, there absolutely were. If anyone wants to read a great one, William Wells Brown. It's available mm-hmm. online. Um, I know this because I've been teaching it on my own course this semester, and it's a great kind of mid nineteenth century from a guy who who had been enslaved in America and had come over to the UK to travel around a bit. He goes to see Harriet Martineau to like pay homage to her work in in the abolition movement. Like just because they're not obvious doesn't mean that we shouldn't dig them out. And I think that's a problem with digital humanities work sometimes that it's got the capacity to enlarge the canon. Because that's that requires a, a lot of extra work yeah. and in, including archival work, mm-hmm. it doesn't always happen. And so I think the 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 risk with digital humanities is that it ends up perpetuating the canon, even though its potential is to massively break it down. Mm. But so what we did in the book, the Lake District book, was to use the corpus as a starting point, right. and then to add in text by people like Dorothy Wordsworth, who wasn't included in the corpus, William Wells Brown, and a few. Um, a few others so that the corpus became a kind of starting point to recognize patterns mm. but then we actively brought out other texts that were a bit more representative of the kind of people who were actually living and writing and walking in the late district in the 19th century my actual proper find from this point of view was thanks to another digital humanities project the 18th century poetry archive which is run by alexander huber at oxford and I was looking for examples of working class writing in the late district, which again is a thing that wasn't really represented in the corpus of late district writing, mm-hmm. and found a book called Susanna Blameyer, who is a hoot. <laughs> Why is she a hoot? Oh, she's just great. She just writes this like rollicking verse about like 
again like about day-to-day life but like it's about like just day-to-day village life in the northern lake district in the early 19th century and it's just like you know the, a cow gets loose people get drunk it's great any use of the word rollicking and i'm in like <laughs> anything that includes cows and getting drunk i'm in that sounds great although also very dangerous yeah cows yeah. kill mm-hmm, mm-hmm. don't tip them <laughs> Um, Don't tip the cows. <laughs> I was gonna experience the sublime. But then I got high. Actually, one more question, because there are allegations again on our podcast. So we discussed in detail this theory that Dorothy Wordsworth was <laughs> the drug dealer to the early romantics. Interesting. Is there any truth in that? What was the allegation founded upon? Nothing, Nothing at all. <laughs> it, it's a misremembered thing that we just took it and ran with it because it's... We just took it. We're going to start a new Netflix series called Dealing with Dorothy. Mm-hmm. I feel like what happened there is that that film Pandemonium has been used slightly as a documentary, which which fine. What, what, it's a great film. What does that allege about? Because in that... So Dorothy and William, it's actually William that's the drug dealer, that's a Coleridge in Pandemonium. And he like encourages Coleridge's opium use because he's jealous of Coleridge's like poetic genius. So he's giving him opium to fuck him up um, so that he can write like amazing verse because Coleridge is off like writing things like The Ancient Mariner and William staring at a blank page. He gets jealous and so gives Coleridge more opium, but with the side effect that then opium fucks Dorothy up as well. Dark drama. Um, which kind of like, um, there's some... <laughs> The facts in that are that Coleridge was fucked up by opium. Oh, yeah. As was Dorothy. Because you remember I said that she had no teeth? That really hurts. And so she took opium and laudanum for her toothache. And and so she had... Which um, obviously made it much better. Well, I mean, I guess it got rid of the pain. (laughs) And got rid of the teeth. Is that not what any of us are searching for? Yes. Yeah, opium. Yeah, any reduction from the pain and if opium is there. <laughs> I mean, this I year is I, the year, everyone. I feel like, yeah, exactly, if anyone's going to try opium, 2020. <laughs> I feel like if she was the romantic drug dealer, she didn't do a very good job because she consumed the product before she dealt it. You never try before you buy. Mm-hmm. Never do it. That's it. That's the rules 101 of drug dealing is... What's that <laughs> film? It's a really famous film and you're not supposed to try the stash and... Oh, it's, but then there's this famous scene with him with a pile of of cocaine. Opium? No, of cocaine. Is it no, like probably? Uh, but really, yeah, that's literally puts his head in it. I can't remember. It, it's, it's one of those kind of you know those kind of classic films that like men who like films say that they like. I think it's Pulp. Hey, that's what they have on their Tinder bio. Yeah, pretty much. In every Tarantino film. <sighs> hate that actually is like you didn't ask me about a pet hate but there's a pet hate was when i was on tinder i seriously judged people who um told me that they liked very well-meaning books with very intense male protagonists it's like well now i know that you're going to be a bit of a wanker Mm -hmm. oh yeah (laughs) i mean if someone you know we have friends that uh we have friends. We have friends. We totally have friends. We have friends. <laughs> Who work on like David Foster Wallace and Philip Roth and stuff like that. And oh, kind of... no, not those. Those aren't our friends. I'm joking. Yeah, we don't associate with those kind of people. Yeah, they're, they're the kind of friends that we bully. So it's yeah. fine. But yeah, if anyone turns around and says like certain authors, I'm just like, ugh. 
oh my favorite author it's like oh god <laughs> run well, away like as soon as anyone finds out that you've got like a phd in literature of course like oh my favorite author is somebody very high losing my favorite book is still harry potter and i will happily die on that hill as well like harry potter till i die yeah. and i'm actually listening to the harry potter audiobook at the moment and i love it as much now as i did when i was 11 yeah. we just don't love her the real we don't love her no series. cancel jk <laughs> Um, but, but yeah. Bing, bang, bong, sing, sang, song, ding, ding, dong. UK. Professional Standards Framework works with individuals and institutions in higher education to provide students with an excellent learning experience. Is there anything else that you'd like to plug? You've talked about the book. Is there anything else that you're up to that you would like everyone to be aware of? I mean, you did a good job of trying to plug women in the hills and then I went off piste. Oh, um, nice pun. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Yes. Um, Women in the Hills will be relaunching in January, though. Know, um, so I guess watch this space. We'll have more hills soon. More hills, more women. Excellent. And it's legal to do so. We've been long my praxis. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, a five star output deserves five star reviews. No reviewer two comments, please. Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter W and the number 1855. Our shape this week is the blue corn moon. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye!